2: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
3: Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. (laughs) This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
2: Okay, so here we are at Jok Son Chulai and Jalatze, Jalatze, Jalatze is gonna show us how to make rice porridge. And this is a great way of using day-old rice. Uh, You can use freshly cooked rice too, but the day-old is great because it'll soak up the flavor of the soup as she makes it.
3: That was Andy Ricker, chef-owner of the Pak Pak Restaurants and an expert in the cuisine of northern Thailand. I visited Andy at his part-time house outside of Chiang Mai. He introduced me to Thai cooking, to his spirit house, and his cat, Jamuk. But right now, it's time to check in with Raina Javeri and hear what's going on in the kitchen at Milk Street. Hi, Raina, how are you?
4: I'm well, Chris. Hi.
3: This week, it's Swiss chard week. (laughs) Uh, And the question is, what do you do with Swiss chard? Well, we were in London uh, a few months ago, ended up cooking with Fuchsia Dunlop, author of Every Grain of Rice. And she has this great method of cooking these greens. It involves aromatics, some Swiss chard, and some hot oil.
4: So yeah, Chris, we actually love this method that Fuchsia introduced us to. Turns out that it's a classic Cantonese method. We use two bunches of Swiss chard and remove the stems first, and then use a half-steam, half-sauté method, which is easier and better than blanching. To add that all that flavor, we top this with aromatics such as scallions, ginger, and serrano. And then, this is important, we heat our oil till it's smoking hot.
3: So is this like the lousy six-month-old canola oil i have sitting in my pantry, or is this something different?
4: First of all, you need to throw that out. (laughs) Next, you need to get some grapeseed oil for this recipe. We use two tablespoons of grapeseed or vegetable oil, fresh. And in addition to that, we use one tablespoon of sesame oil in the same pan that we cook our greens in. And again, you want to make sure that oil is really smoking hot, and then pour this directly over the aromatics in the bowl.
3: And this is a toasted sesame oil, right?
4: So yes, this is a toasted sesame oil, and what it's going to do is really draw out all the flavors of those aromatics while still keeping the flavor of the greens fresh.
3: So to finish, is that it, or do we add anything else?
4: A couple more things. We're going to add a little bit of soy sauce and some unseasoned rice wine vinegar, and these add some acidity and light sweetness without overwhelming the dish.
3: So now we have flavor, we have hot oil, we have non-bitter greens. I actually like Swiss chard now. And it's fast. And it's fast. Thank you, Raina.
4: You can get our recipe for sizzling greens on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com.
3: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Malton, star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? Are you ready to take some calls? Chris, I sure am. I'm prepared. One of us has to be prepared. That's true. It's Chris and Sarah at Milk Street. How can we help you?
5: Yes, I have a question about um, cabbage rolls. Okay. I made cabbage rolls for the first time last week, and they came out all right. The only problem I had was getting the leaves to separate from the head. I tried removing them from the raw head, as one recipe suggested. They were very tight and kept tearing. I then tried removing the core and boiling the whole head. Uh-huh. This was easier for the leaves to stay intact, but the head kept bobbing around. <laughs> and it was like an accident waiting to happen.
6: <laughs> I thought you were going to say it looked like, well, I won't say.
3: Yeah. yeah. Did, uh, I think you said you tried it, cutting off a bit of the core and then coring the cabbage first. Did that work yeah. without cooking it?
5: The leaves were so tight against oh, the head. Right. I see. And I tried two different heads and they kept ripping.
3: I would say one or two minutes, just simmer it. And you would, can would weight help. it
6: down with, say, a plate or, you know, some sort of lid that you put in there and then put a weight on it so it sort of stays underwater for a couple
3: of minutes. Or uh, the easiest oh, thing to do would be to steam I it. I think
6: about that. D- oh, steaming. To just use That's an inch of idea. water
3: at the bottom of the big stock pot and put it on a steaming rack. That's a good idea. And that would be the oh. and
6: then, easiest. And then what you're going to have to do is it's sort of like you're going to have to take a couple of the outer leaves off and then when they no longer are coming off, you put it back in, give it a, you know another couple of minutes and keep going.
5: Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea, the steaming. I didn't think about steaming
3: it at all. A lot of cultures steam all the time. Even the English steam. I know, but it's not on
6: our radar screen the way it should be. You know, we
3: just— there was a recipe I just found where they took a chicken with a chili paste in a steamer and underneath was liquid with some lemongrass, other things. But they steamed the chicken and the juices dripped down into the liquid. Wow,
6: so you got a twofer.
3: And you get a soup.
6: So you get a some soup. chili
3: paste and chicken, Yummy. and then you had the steamed chicken. Yeah.
6: Only trouble with steaming is you have to keep replenishing the liquid because it does eventually evaporate. So if it's long term, yeah. you know, like I used to steam beets, and bigger ones take 45 minutes. You have to keep putting more water in. But you know, I think right. this is a good idea with the yeah. cabbage. Yeah. But be careful when you pull the lid off because then that steam will hit you. So wear good gloves and all that. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that image of the bobbing. Well, I wasn't (laughs) going to go there. It's it's not not. Halloween we're just talking about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
5: Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. All right.
3: Thank you. Take care. Thanks so much for calling. It's Chris and Sarah. How can we help you?
5: Hi, Chris and Sarah. Um, I had a question for you regarding outfitting a minimalist kitchen. I have been thinking about this because I have friends who are downsizing, I have kids who are heading off to college and beyond, and everybody loves cooking, but we're thinking about simplifying. With that in mind, I just wondered what you might suggest for an ideally streamlined kitchen.
6: So you're referring to equipment or you're referring to pantry?
5: The first part of my question was equipment, but the second part of my question was pantry.
6: First of all, who are we speaking to?
5: Carolyn Okay, and I'm calling from Lincoln, Massachusetts.
6: All right, Carolyn. So a 10-inch knife, chef's knife, and then Mm -hmm. a serrated knife, a paring knife, and either a large saucepan or a stockpot.
3: By the way, you can buy the world's cheapest stockpot, but the saucepan, you should spend money
6: Right. Then I'd say 12-inch skillet. That's got to be the workhorse. And then mm-hmm. a smaller, like a 10-inch or an 8-inch for omelets or other things like that. Tongs, of course.
3: Instant thermometer.
6: Cutting board. An assortment of spoons, of course. I love my metal bench scraper because I move everything across the kitchen with it. What else do
3: you think? I'm high on the Chinese vegetable cleaver or some sort of cleaver. You can use them as a bench scraper as well. The one thing Sarah left off was knife sharpener. Right. So pantry, first of all, I think about sauces. Soy sauce, a light soy sauce is also good. Oyster sauce, fish sauce, pomegranate molasses. It's nice to add to soups and stews. Wet paste, like tomato paste, anchovy paste, things that come in tubes. There's a few of those.
6: Canned tomatoes, important.
3: Canned tomatoes. And then I would also say spices, but spice blends like sitar, you know, from turkey, which is nice. I would say cumin is essential. Turmeric is essential, and I would try to get one other pepper that's kind of a different kind of pepper would be nice as well, a ground pepper of some kind. And then finally, I would think about the alliums, you know, some shallots and garlic and onion just sort of sitting around. Uh, One great way is to mix spices with herbs or mix spices with onions and shallots. You see a lot of cultures mix them up and use them as a flavoring, so you can mix and match with those things.
6: We also have to throw in pasta and dried grains and canned beans Because those are things you can reach for in a pinch and, you know, make a meal. Plus oils and vinegars.
3: I have a very small kitchen now, relatively speaking, and I like it more. It's easier to cook in. I don't have to walk around the perimeter to find things. So I'm all for small.
6: Yeah, no, and then you can find everything. It has to be strategically placed. Anything else we missed that you had on your list?
5: Well, the question I also had was as far as the stock pot went, Do you think a large Dutch oven could be a substitute for the stock pot?
3: Most of the time I use a Dutch oven, a six to seven quart Dutch oven, and you can boil pasta in that.
5: Yeah, these are all good. So uh, thank you very much. I think this would all fit into probably two large Rubbermaid bins if you had to be sort of like that nomadic young person who's moving from apartment to apartment and um, could pack it all up and move it out. Yeah, Yeah, I think so.
3: Less is more. Yes, exactly.
5: I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Thank you, Carolyn. Well,
5: thank
3: you. You have a good one. Okay, Okay. take care. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a call. That number is 1-855-4-BOWTIE, 1-855-4-BOWTIE. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
6: Hi, it's Sarah and Chris. How can we help you?
5: Okay, well, while cooking, I noticed a lot of recipes call for salt and pepper, And I know what salt brings to a lot of things, but
3: what does pepper do? Great question. I have the same question, Sarah. (laughs) We're both listening.
6: Okay. Well, you know, there's no one kind of pepper, and each one of them brings something to the mix. And black being sort of the most robust. So green is the unripe, and then it gets ripened into black. And then if you remove the outer shell of the black, you have the white, which is sort of a more pure, dry heat almost like what
3: the Chinese
6: use. So it sort of gives you a spicy, robust
3: element. This sounds like a politician who was asked, <laughs> are you gonna vote for the treaty or not? Then you digress.
6: No, but you know what? This also brings us back to the conversation about what salt to use, what pepper to use. So if you have something like a red meat,
3: then you want to reach for the black pepper. Here's what I don't get. Yeah. Why is pepper a ubiquitous thing? that so many recipes. I understand salt. That's you know, totally different. I
6: actually but don't I, know. I, I That's think you history. should treat
3: pepper like cumin, like turmeric. You mean it shouldn't like be so knee jerk? Well, in a recipe where it's appropriate, you should use pepper and use more of it rather than just a couple of things, you know, twists. So it should be present and important, not this kind of knee jerk, below, thing. The, knee-jerk below salt, the radar. Pepper salt and pepper
6: salt. And yeah, pepper. I don't. You know what? I agree with you. And
3: you know why? Yeah. I think the reason is in Northern Europe, they didn't have many spices. So this is what they could I mean, the reform. Ottomans had 100. They had a few, and pepper was one of the things they had. It was probably the strongest thing they had, so they used it. But I, I think this is— And
6: maybe that was partially to hide the bad meat. I
3: think they, salt could, and pepper could, need to get a divorce. They I, have to go their own way and use pepper when appropriate, but salt all the time, pepper occasionally. Chris Kimball, I agree with you. Holy, holy. Holy moly. What a revelation. (laughs) I was just going to say, if
6: you are going to use them, so white pepper, you know, is, as I said, a little drier heat. The Chinese use it a lot, white pepper. But
3: they don't use it in everything.
6: No, you're absolutely right. I
3: think pepper should be treated like any other spice. I agree. Did we remotely
5: answer your question there? Well, it's just that You can taste something and you can taste the salt. Right. You know, you know if you've undersalted, oversalted, but when do you know you over or under peppered? Well,
6: I think what we're saying here is you should treat it like any other spice and not say there is any gold standard for the right amount of pepper. Yeah. Then you want to taste the pepper, but other than that it should be like you wanted a hint of as Chris said cumin.
3: Jackie, does that make sense to you? Do you agree? Yeah, I think
5: basically it's pepper doesn't really do anything unless it's of a recipe that needs right. pepper exactly but exactly I guess, like you say use your own judgment and we just do it because the recipe says salt and pepper
3: we should just yeah. say salt and paprika
5: right Good. i think it's just because
3: it goes together okay i got that off my chest i feel so yeah. much yeah. yeah yeah
5: okay thank you
3: you're listening to Mill street radio i'm christopher kimball after the break, we take a trip to Chiang Mai in Northern Thailand, where I met up with chef Andy Ricker for a cooking lesson. Andy, by the way, is the owner of the Pok Pok restaurants here in the States and also an expert in the cuisines of Northern Thailand.
2: Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago... If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big-game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend.
3: This is Mill Street Radio, I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time to talk to Andy Ricker. Andy is an American chef. He's owner of six pak pak restaurants in this country. Also an expert in the cuisine of Northern Thailand. I interviewed Andy in the late afternoon on the first floor of his teak house on the outskirts of Chiang Mai in Thailand. I started by asking Andy about the house and how Thai architecture is quite different than what we have here in the United States. This cool house, so once want you to describe the construction method for a house like this?
2: Sure, so this is a typical uh, Thai-style house. It's built on columns raised up, at least the front part of the house. Uh, This is built out of teak. It's a a salvaged wood from an old rice barn. The way that it's built is so that you do a lot of your living outside here. Down below the house, you get shelter, and it's cool and dry.
3: And it's all open.
2: And it's open all the way around. So this is typically where people would hang out during the day have their social life, friends come over and talk. The upstairs is really for sleeping, more or less, and most of life happens outside, cooking happens outside, uh, usually a small kitchen either kind of to the side of the house, in back of the house, or in this case, we've built one kind of underneath the house to the side.
3: So this, you said this is in a very large valley, it's surrounded not entirely, but on three sides by mountains, I guess, Yeah. In Burma is? 150 miles from here. Yeah,
2: something like that. Not not that not that far away, really. Uh, If you you, if you head due west from here, you get to Burma pretty quick.
3: Um, So tell me about the house of spirits. We were just talking about that at lunch. What's the house? Okay.
2: So there's a spirit house on most properties. Almost every house in in Thailand or business has a spirit house, and it's kind of set off to the side of the house, and it is um, a place where. The the people who live on the property invite the the spirits from the land to go and stay, and uh, so the humans can stay in their own house.
3: So, does that mean that the the house is taking up land where the spirits lived? And once you built the house, you need to give the spirits a place to go to. Is that what? That's
2: more. That's more or less it. You're you're coming onto their land, and you want to uh, first ask their permission to do so, and then provide them with a place to to stay while we've taken up their space and using their land for our own purposes.
3: So, how do you greet people here? I mean, physically, how do you do it? What do you say? What's the process of saying hello?
2: Well, uh, typically, Thai people greet each other by uh, whying, basically placing your hands together, palms together, uh, fingers up, kind of in a praying position, more or less, and it's a sign of respect. And depending on how high or low you why it depends on how important the person is in front of you. But Thai people, if they greet each other and say, "Sabadi kap, hello, sabaydi my kap, how are you doing? Ginkali kap, which means, have you eaten rice yet? Or have you eaten yet? Uh, which is, is not typically a literal uh, they're not literally looking for an answer. But it gives the person to say, oh, gin lao kap kun kap, I've eaten already. Or yang my gin, that, that might lead to a, an invitation to go and have something to eat.
3: So um, we were talking about. Thai food, and one of the things you said, if someone said how was the chicken, they might reply, it's it had a wonderful aroma, or it smelled good. Yes. So aroma is more important than anything else in cooking, or it's it's very important.
2: It's very important. In in uh, in a lot of cases, it's more important depending on the dish. So and it's counterintuitive to Westerners uh, often. So when you say shrimp paste. We, we look at shrimp paste and we might take a, a smell of it and think, wow, what a pungent, strong odor. Uh, but a Thai person might say, oh, hal mak, it smells really good. So it's, it's like uh, with shrimp paste, you might, you might say that it smells nice. You might necessarily take a taste and go, oh, roi mak, or it tastes great. The importance of smell and aroma in, in cooking here is, can't really be understated. Uh, I know cooks who cook by the sense of smell alone. They can smell whether it's salty enough or not. Hmm. They think of things in terms of, of aroma that we wouldn't. So, for instance, black pepper. They would, they would say, a home, pictai. Uh So it smells like pepper. It smells really good like pepper.
3: So there's no such thing as Thai cooking because there are different regions that are very different. We're in the north. So what are the regions and what are the, the basic differences
2: so there's there's four basic regions of Thailand there's the south of Thailand which is peninsular Thailand that 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 connects with Malaysia the staple rice there is is jasmine rice then you get to central Thailand which is where the seat of power and culture is in Bangkok and the the surrounding areas in the the Chao Phraya River Delta that's central Thai that's where the the Thai language the the and a lot of the food that we eat in the West comes from this region and then there's northeastern Thailand or Isan, which goes along the Lao border, Laos border, and also a little bit of Cambodia. And that's influenced by Laos. Uh, the people there, are primarily ethnically Lao, some Khmer, and the staple rice there is sticky rice. And then the fourth major region is northern Thailand, which is where we are right now. And Chiang Mai is the center of it, mountainous jungle region, and the people here speak Northern Thai language and their staple is sticky rice.
3: We've talked before about the different components of a dish in Thai cooking, sweet, sour, bitter, salty. What are What's the philosophy when you think about putting together or cooking Thai food, no matter what region?
2: Well, I would say that that Asian food, unlike Western food, which kind of builds flavor over time to, to come up with a, sort of a monolithic, single, kind of like strong, uh, rich flavor. Thai food and Southeast Asian food in general tends to be this kind of like battle of different bright, salty, sweet, sour, hot, bitter, all working together in various different roles in, in, in particular dishes. But they don't meld to become one thing. Like often dishes here, you can taste everything that's going on all at once in a bite.
3: There are some combinations that are used all the time. Hot chilies with garlic mm-hmm. that are mashed up. Uh, cilantro with garlic. Uh, what are some of those pairings that are used as, as key flavorings in
2: dishes? Right, so there's also, often up north here especially, you see a combination of uh, coriander, cilantro, green onion, and uh, sawtooth, or what we call Pak Chi Falang, or foreigners uh, cilantro. Um, which is kind of a sawtooth dandelion shaped leaf, which is stronger version of cilantro, perhaps. Those chopped up and and spread on top of things is really common. The use of uh, garlic and garlic oil, combination of pork and prawns, which is very Chinese. You see that a lot in Thai cooking. Thai salads often have ground pork and prawns mixed into the same thing. Yeah, it, it, there's, there's a lot of combinations, uh, fish sauce, lime juice palm sugar those three things together form the basis of the dressing for almost any kind of thai style salad
3: um steaming we, yes we went to a market yesterday where the gentleman was selling steamed chicken with a, a chili paste steaming's done a lot here and it's almost not done at all it's, it's
2: yeah and that's one of the it's a mystery to me because it's a it's such a versatile Easy way of cooking things. Um, they do everything from steaming rice. Uh, they steam meats, steam vegetables. A lot of the desserts that you have here in Thai, the sweets, are steamed. Steamed fish is huge here. People love planung, blas fish. Nung means steam. Planung manau. a classic Thai dish is a whole fish, typically like a striped bass, that's been scored down the side, and you make a uh, a mixture of uh, cilantro root, garlic, green chilies, lime, uh, maybe some fish sauce, a little bit of sugar. And you pour that on top of the fish, put it into the steamer, let it steam for 15 minutes or so until the fish is completely done. And the, the steam kind of drips down onto the plate that the fish is on hmm. and combines with the fish sauce, lime juice, that coriander good. root, <clears throat> uh, a little bit of sugar, maybe some white pepper, and makes a sauce that the, the, sis, the fish is now sitting in and it's delicious.
3: Uh, Eggs, you often cook them in very hot oil in a wok. Mm -hmm. So what are a couple of those?
2: So there's uh, kai dao, which is, uh, kai means egg, dao means star. So the Thai people look at this egg frying in a wok and they think it looks like a star. And I love this way of frying an egg because you get this nice crispy brown part of the, the egg white and then the yolk stays nice and molten. And then the other thing that we did was kaijio, which is a basically more or less a deep-fried omelette. You pour the egg slowly into very hot oil until it puffs up. Um, but there's a lot of other ways to do eggs, too, that uh, that you can steam them, as we saw at um, Rangaprau the other day, to make a really beautiful, simple custard. Uh, you can just pour hot water on an egg and let it sit for five or ten minutes and mm. crack it and it's, its poached slash coddled in the shell.
3: So yesterday we were at a, a chicken place and the two things that were interesting was they used the, uh, coals, the, the cold ash from the day before on top of the live coals so there were no flare-ups and I guess it moderated the heat. I mean, I've never seen that before. That was really interesting.
2: Right. So, um, you know, over the years, I've really uh, spent a lot of time watching the way people grill here and the way they use charcoal. And We, we use charcoal uh, at the restaurant a lot. It's, it's kind of really important to our menu to have uh, ch- cooking on charcoal. And what I've noticed here, and if you look at other cultures as well, people who are really into grilling tend to build a fire, and then maintain the fire in whatever way they do. And then they, by changing the height of the grill off the fire, that's how they determine how fast or slow something cooks. So they make this big bed of sort of radiant heat from the charcoal, and then they just kind of raise or lower the grill a little bit. Or, as you saw with the chicken guy, he literally uses the chickens that are clamped with, with uh, bamboo sticks to raise or lower the chickens so that he can cook the breast longer or the legs longer or the side of the chicken longer. Um, but it's all about varying the height of the, the thing you're cooking relative to the charcoal rather than trying to regulate the heat of the, of the fire itself. So
3: give me a couple examples of things that have happened to you or experiences in Thailand that really would never happen back in the States.
2: Yeah, um, so going into a market Right? Uh, this is something that's really uniquely Thai. Uh, you go into a country, like we did this morning. Uh, we went to the local market. It's just a little, like a little tiny wet market that, that serves the, the, the small community around here. And,
3: and you said it opens at 4.30 or something?
2: Yeah, it opens at 4.30 in the morning. By 7.30, it's done. Eight you, you, o'clock, you wouldn't even know that it had happened. You know, we went there to buy a few things, some vegetables a little bit of pork, a little bit of chicken, that kind of thing. And you know, as soon as we walk in, all heads perk up and people are kind of talking to each other across the aisle, they're talking to you, where do you live, where did you come from? I speak Thai and then people start laughing and, and then, then there's like this kind of like everybody's talking. It's a very friendly, open place and, and um, especially in Northern Thailand, people are generous with their time and their, uh, their knowledge. And and that's not really something you see as much in the United States. We tend to stay in our own houses. We go to the coffee shop, we get in front of our computers and kind of stay with our friends. And you go to the market here and everybody's wide open yelling at each other across the market. You know, it's it's a very open, fun place.
3: The the king died uh, not too long ago. Yeah. And um, I really been struck by the fact that he was so beloved among the people, which is mm. not something in America you're used to at all. Right. It's, it's a very, very different relationship. So could you just talk about that? I mean, people, you know, are in mourning still a yes. long time after. Right. Uh, and, and for us, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's something that's quite different.
2: Mm. Yeah. Well, what you have to remember is that most of the people who are living today in Thailand have only known one king their whole life. He reigned for 70 plus years. Um, and he was beloved by the, by the people. He did a lot of really good work uh, for this country. He was really dedicated to helping the less fortunate people, introducing agricultural systems to help people lift themselves up. So he did a lot of really great things. He was a, he was a great musician and a composer, so he contributed to the arts. And to the Thai people, he was almost godlike in a way. So when he passed away, even though people knew it was coming, uh, it was still a, a huge, it's a huge shock. And the official mourning period was 30 days, but really it's, it's going to be a year of mourning. And then he'll be remembered forever. Like he's going to go down in, in Thai history. People will keep that picture of the king on their wall.
3: So when you first came here 30 years ago, was there one moment when you knew you were gonna be coming back a lot? Did something happen, or was it just gradual?
2: Uh, I think it was gradual, but I had, I had like a couple of moments where you, you know when you, when you travel by yourself and you can't speak a language and you're in this strange culture, uh, you can feel pretty isolated and pretty left out of things. And, and if, you're, if you're not a, a real outgoing kind of personality, it can be a little daunting and un- unwelcoming. So I had to take a bus from Kotao, southern Thailand, all the way to Bangkok because I lost a contact lens and the one I needed wasn't in the nearest town. So I had to go to Bangkok on the local bus and I had no money, I was a backpacker. I think the, the bus ride to Bangkok was like $4 or $5 at the time, it was like 150 baht, all the way to Bangkok and that's, a, that's like a 14 hour bus ride. Uh, but it was the local bus so you're in these bench seats with like three or four people across and the folks who were on the bus were like construction workers local folks nobody spoke english at all including the driver Uh, but there were a couple of fishermen sitting next to me who had a bottle of rice whiskey Hmm. and a bottle of lipo which is a a energy drink and they said hey you know they, they kind of motioned for me to come over gave me a few shots and you know Twenty minutes later, after six more shots, <laughs> we were best buddies, and I, I couldn't say anything except for "thank you, cop, kap, cop, cop, cop." And uh, at some point, somebody like uh, waved the the uh, the bus driver down and said, you know, said something, and, and, and people kind of got up and started filing. Like the guys I was with started filing off the bus, and I was like, "Oh, I got I got to go to the bathroom," so I like ran off the bus with them took a leak on next to the bus and the, and the bus erupted in laughter. <laughs> we, we all like stumbled drunk back onto the bus and people were laughing. And it was just, you know, it was, it was a really great moment. Like I was an outsider, they didn't know me, I didn't know them, but we were having a fun moment. And you know, if you can have that kind of experience in a situation where you don't know the language, you don't know the people, you know, that, that's something that makes you feel welcome. That was Andy Ricker. I visited Andy
3: at his house near Chiang Mai in northern Thailand. Thai cooking is not subtle. Unlike French cooking, one starts with simple ingredients, rice, chicken, greens, or perhaps pork, and then one employs a wide array of strong flavorings to make the dish, chilies, galangal, lime leaves, shallot, garlic, shrimp paste, etc. Now, this redefines fast food since flavor is not dependent on time. You actually start with big flavors. You don't need time and heat to develop them. That's why one travels. Other people halfway across the world often know something that you don't. I just wish that I had visited Thailand sooner. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now it's time to talk to New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik, who discusses how we can endure dark times by cooking, eating, and sharing food. Adam,
1: how are you? I'm all right. Christopher, how are you? (laughs)
3: <laughs> it doesn't sound promising.
1: All right. These are, hmm. in many respects, kind of gloomy or easily shaken days. And in fact, that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about, Christopher. And that is the relationship of cooking and catastrophe, how we put those two things together. Now, of course, we have food catastrophes locally in the kitchen all the time, right? The souffle that doesn't rise, the béarnaise sauce that won't quite knit, all of those things. But I, I had in mind a different kind of catastrophe, I got to thinking about how it is and why it is that eating is so closely related to mourning, why eating is so closely related to sorrow. You know, It's an interesting thing. I'm sure you've thought about this, Chris, that in every culture that I'm aware of, we use food, it's true, and we celebrate food for moments when life seems positive. We have wedding feasts, and we have birthday feasts, and we have christening feasts, and so on. But We also have an intimate relationship with food when we are in despair, when we are desperate. It's fascinating, isn't it, that every culture has a funeral meal. The first thing we do when the worst thing happens, when someone close to us dies, is gather people around us and start eating.
3: I would assume that's because one wants to immediately go to something normal and social, right?
1: I think that's right, and that's exactly what I've been thinking about. I've been through, you know, several. When I say catastrophes, of course, I don't mean the apocalyptic ones that blow up the world. But keen disappointments, shocking events, public difficulties of all kinds. And what always is astonishing to me is how quickly people coalesce to eat. Now, one theory of why people come together to eat at moments of high stress or intense mourning is, of course, that it, there's comfort in it. You know, we've talked in the past about comfort food and the ins and outs of comfort food and what that means. And that's one theory of it. You know, Elizabeth Luard in her wonderful book, Sacred Food, talks about all of the ways that people celebrate or take in funerals around the world. And she points out that there's a kind of eerie similarity among the ways people do it. The things from culture to culture that seem most closely associated with meals of mourning and remembrance are, first of all, roasted meats, And secondly, things that are shaped like um, heavenly objects, like the sun and stars. Think of how many round breads we associate, again and again, with wakes and caddishes. It seems to be a deep human association between the look of the heavens and the things that you eat in times of mourning. So that's one way of thinking about uh, morning food. It's one way of thinking about uh, what we eat when we're sad, is that we eat a certain number of things that we find comforting. But I think that it's even more important that not so much the special ritual nature of the foods we choose to eat. It's exactly the sameness of things that we want to assert. More than any other part of our life, eating with our friends and with our family enforces the chronic nature of our human lives. That the earth turns round, the sun comes up, and we will always be hungry again. And so every time that we come together for a wake or a kaddish or an improvised morning uh, after a political event, whatever it might be, we are asserting not so much the specialness of the comfort that we seek, we're asserting the absolute normality of the time that we're in.
3: So instead of saying life goes on, the table goes
1: on. Yes, exactly, Chris. And that those two things are so closely allied that they often mean exactly the same thing. You know, I think about my first memory of eating in a time of pain goes all the way back to the assassination of John Kennedy, which took place when I was about seven years old. I don't know. Are you old enough to remember it clearly?
3: I remember exactly. I heard it right after uh, lunch hour. I was in elementary school, and I was 13 at the time, I think. Yeah, the school was called together, and uh, the head of the school uh, talked to us.
1: I remember too, I was a little bit younger, but like all of us, it was the first public event that stands out for me. And of course, as you remember, one of the things that made it so strange as a time of National Mourning is that it immediately preceded Thanksgiving. And I remember it was one of my keenest memories of the nature of loss and the meaning of loss that we both had to celebrate Thanksgiving, my family did, and at the same time, We couldn't celebrate Thanksgiving, and I remember being struck by the sense that my mother and my grandmother preparing the Thanksgiving feast meant that they were tied to a clock that would turn inevitably, that there was no option of canceling the Thanksgiving feast, that it automatically became a kind of feast for mourning for the dead president by the very fact of its compulsory nature, if that makes any sense to you, Christopher, that we were bound to have the Thanksgiving feast, and the feast, in a sense, would find its own level by the feelings that we brought to it. And I've been struck by that again and again in my own experience of public mourning. I remember being so struck on the day of 9-11 when I was downtown in Lower Manhattan right after the plane struck, and I walked all the way home to our house on 88th Street, and I stopped in restaurants and supermarkets along the way just with my notebook open. And what was astounding was the number of people who were compiling what I called at the time sort of apocalyptic grocery baskets, presumably because they were trying to be practically minded and wondering if food deliveries would be cut off, a kind of slightly absurd thought, given the circumstances of New York provisioning. But nonetheless, they were. But at some other deeper level, there was an immediate kind of appetite in the deepest possible sense to fill up your larder when you are frightened, to go back to your stove when you are distressed, to share food with your friends when you are miserable. And it seems to me that that connection, as I said before, is less a connection to comfort than it is a connection to the relentlessness of time, to repositioning ourselves in the calendar in a way that has an inexorability about it, less about comfort and more about the necessity of the human calendar to assert itself.
3: Well, maybe the kitchen is both the safest room in the house and also the most timeless, right?
1: That's eloquently said, Chris. It is the safest room in the house, and it is the timeless one. And it's the place where we go when we're in difficulty with our kids. And it's a way of not just, you know, in the theater. The primary rule is show, don't tell, right? It's the actions characters take on stage that really assert their moral character. And I think that's true in life, too. It's by going into the kitchen and cooking for our children when they feel anxious or depressed. We are actually showing them, not merely telling them, that life can continue. That
3: was Adam Gopnik, a regular contributor to The New Yorker. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, Dan Pashman tells us his New Year's resolution— It has something to do with pajamas, late nights, and something whipped. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I
5: am ready.
3: Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi, this is Andrea Shastid from Louisville, Kentucky, and I have a question about grilling shrimp the proper way and how long to cook it on a barbecue.
3: That's hard because shrimp cook very fast, and it's also the barbecue is this gas or charcoal? Charcoal. Okay, you never have exactly the right same temperature twice in a row. So I would say in uh-huh. the shell is a must,
6: and the larger the better. And get the
3: biggest. Yeah, the, the Those jumbo, 20s. jumbo guys. Yeah. yeah they're 16 to 20 per pound or jumbo and cook them in the shell because without the shell you'll just torch the outside a minute aside okay. tops they're very well, very quick i think quick. a minute aside yeah. would be
6: okay and then get them off get and them let off. them sit for a second
3: mm. we just did a recipe for chipotle shrimp these were shelled we put raw shrimp in a hot sauce off the heat and let them cook in the sauce, and that's how fast
6: Yeah, You know what it is? They don't have any connective tissue, and they don't have any fat running through them, so there's sort of no protection. It's just like it goes right to the protein, and it just cooks so quickly it can get tough.
5: Mm. I feel like we told you terrible
6: news. You sound sad.
5: (laughs) I, I am because I always serve my shrimp with the shell off so that people don't have to then pick it up and peel it off, and it's a big mess it's just so much easier if they could eat.
6: Well then you know here's what I would do. Go ahead and shell them. And then mm-hmm. but large and toss them with oil. Right. You know, season them and then just get mm-hmm. it on a really hot fire really quickly and here's what I always do when I'm cooking something for the first time and I don't sort of know how it's going to go. This is true for baking something too. I do a test pilot. Do a Lone mm-hmm. Ranger. And give him or her thirty seconds on each side, and then take it off and give it, you know, another thirty seconds or so to cool, and then cut into it and see if it's cooked all the way through. And sort of, but
3: I would also use a fish or vegetable basket. Yeah. Because turning fifteen or twenty shrimp, you'll never get it right. So, do you use a basket of some kind when you grill?
5: No, I put them on a
6: skewer. They twist when you lift them up, so double skewers. Um, And what kind of oil? Whatever you
5: like.
3: Not olive, no. I would use canola. Not olive oil. It has a low smoke point. Yeah, something cheap and, and sturdy.
5: Well, I will experiment. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
3: Yeah, our great pleasure. Thanks for calling. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi, this is Laura Jane Wright. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing?
3: I'm good. How can we help you?
5: Well, I got your first edition of Milk Street Magazine, and I have looked at this chocolate prune and rum cake, and I have a question about the salt. Okay. So you use salted butter, which is interesting, and then you have kosher salt, and I was wondering about the coarseness of the salt. Fine salt, kosher salt, or coarse ground
3: Uh-oh. kosher salt? This is Sarah and I are going to go at it. Yeah, um, we are. So I think, <laughs> even though I'm the only person in the world who believes this, that a coarse kosher salt in baking's fine i've never had a problem with the salt not dispersing properly and now Sarah's going to tell you, <laughs> I can tell that I'm absolutely. <laughs> you, wrong. What
6: you can't see is the look on my face. Yeah, it's
3: like horror.
6: Yeah, you need, I really firmly believe. Now, of course, I'd like to do a comparison that fine salt dissolves much better because it's just smaller pieces than kosher right. salt. So that's the one time mm-hmm. I use fine salt. I really don't have a good grinder. I know they're out there for sea salt. I'd probably use sea salt, but if I don't, I just use table salt. So. Okay. Can
3: I just ask? Look, if you're gonna whip egg whites or melt butter or bake a batter, you put in a half a teaspoon of kosher salt. It
6: doesn't dissolve. It's the same going way. to like when you make a vinaigrette, <laughs> you always add the salt to the vinegar so that it dissolves.
3: I, I'm experienced in marriage, and I know there are times when you just say nothing.
6: All right. Well, that is my sincere opinion, um, and most pastry chefs, I think, would agree. But um, I'd like to do a taste test, so.
3: One thing I should say about kosher salt, coarse kosher salt, you can pick it up with your fingers. I actually don't use table salt ever anymore. I like kosher salt. You like to
6: be able to measure it.
3: Yeah, and uh, you know, kosher salt is just easy to work with. But I admit there are a number of people in the world who agree with Sarah.
6: Well, when Julia and Jacques had their cooking show, they couldn't agree on anything. And uh, so it was very funny because at that point, each of them had been cooking for like 60 years. And if between the two of them with 120 years experience, they couldn't agree on anything. It makes you wonder, is there any definitive answer to anything? But they couldn't (laughs) even agree on salt and pepper. They had his and hers. Who used what? She had black pepper for most things, white pepper for white things, kosher salt for meat, and fine salt for baking. He had kosher salt and black pepper. Good. Ah, yes. Go Jacques. Go Jacques. That's what you're saying.
3: Yes, go anyway, Jacques.
6: Anyway, I, I, so that's just one girl's opinion, but that is what I think.
3: Okay. Well, we agreed to... Disagree. Kind of disagree. Yes. Okay. So there you go.
6: All right. Well, Laura, thank you for calling. Thank you so
3: much. Bye-bye. Take care. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, please give us a ring. The number is 1-855-4-BOWTIE. One more time, 1-855-4-BOWTIE. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. You can also find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, or at our own website, which is MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is all about how to use vegetable juice instead of water in cooking. You know, lots of French chefs like Jean-Georges Van Gerichten are actually well-known for their Michelin stars, but also... They like to use vegetable juice instead of water as a base for cooking rice and grains. Now, here at Milk Street, we love carrot juice. It's available at most supermarkets. And we use it instead of water for rice, quinoa, or even bulgur. That's this week's Milk Street Basing. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Dan Pashman is the voice behind the Sporkful podcast, and he's also a regular Milk Street contributor. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks. I'm not even going to ask what's on your mind this week because I just have no idea.
7: Well, it's probably something that's been on your mind recently, and it's the new year. It's time for New Year's resolutions, Chris. And, <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> yeah. and on the Sporkful podcast, we like to do resolutions that are different from a lot of typical resolutions. My listeners and I each pick a food that we resolve to eat more of in the new year. Oh. I don't know. Do you have one? Can you think of a food that you resolve to eat more
3: of? This coming year? Yeah, okay. I have one. It's really weird. Good. Let's hear it. I was in Thailand doing a thing, and I fell in love with tamarind. In fact, it makes the world's best barbecue sauce, tamarind-based. Really? Yeah, I, I didn't care about the chicken, but the sauce is great. So uh, I'm going for tamarind. It makes a great drink, too. So that's my annoying world traveler food.
7: I think there's a uh, a working man's tamarind t- to be found. I mean, <laughs> have you had that uh, that Mexican haritos soda that's tamarind flavored? No. All right. well, so there you go. Thank you. right. So
3: so what is your resolution for the new year?
7: Well, my New year's food resolution this year, Chris, and I'll, I assume you'll add a drum roll in here later on, my New year's food resolution is that in 2017, I resolved to eat more homemade whipped cream. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and I want to say, I picked this as my resolution before news broke of this nationwide shortage of canned whipped cream. Have you heard about this? No, I'm very upset. What has caused that? There was a huge explosion of a nitrous oxide tank at a gas plant back over the summer and it halted nitrous oxide production. And it has resulted in a shortage of canned whipped cream that should be rectified soon, but it's a great opportunity to resolve to eat more homemade whipped cream, which I made so much of at Thanksgiving and I had it left over. So I was eating it out of my fridge for a couple of days, and I gotta tell you, Chris, whipped cream's great on pie and ice cream and fruit and all the things that we know about, but my most delicious bites of homemade whipped cream after Thanksgiving came when it was left over in my fridge. and I would, After the huh. kids were in bed, go down into the kitchen by yourself in your pajamas and stand in the middle of the kitchen eating the leftover whipped cream directly out of the container. How much did you eat? I mean, I went through one large container of heavy cream Over the course of two whippings, I whipped one batch and then a few days later whipped another
3: batch. And you think this is something you'd want to continue well into the new year? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm resolving to. It's not not a one-off. No, no. So, So I get the whipped cream, but my concept would be eat whipped cream. It's an opportunity to eat things that go with whipped cream, right? Okay, go on. Well, I mean, there's pecan pie, there's apple pie, there are brownies, there are custards, trifle. I mean, it's an opportunity to consume lots of desserts that are desperately in need of whipped cream, which I do understand that, chocolate especially. One of
7: the reasons why I prefer to make a New Year's resolution about what I'm going to eat more of as opposed to what I'm going to eat less of or cutting back or hitting the gym or whatever is that there's been some new data I've been looking at that shows that a lot of these resolutions people make about hitting the gym and cutting back on unhealthy foods are pretty short-lived. In fact, data from the location app Foursquare says that right after the New Year, visits to gyms shoot up And visits to fast food restaurants go down. But very soon, those trends start to reverse. And on average, on the first Thursday of February, that's when the two lines cross. And the the visits to fast food restaurants go up to the point that they meet the plummeting visits to gyms. And then this is what I love. The most interesting thing is that the single biggest day of the year for fast food comes just the very next week. The second Friday of February is the biggest day for fast food for the whole year. And Foursquare has dubbed that day
3: the fatty solstice. (laughs) Well, it makes sense because you've been holding back for five weeks, right? And so it's a return to normalcy. Right. So what would your fatty solstice food be, Chris? Actually, I have something similar. Marshmallows. I love marshmallows. Mm. And I do actually sometimes late at night go in and eat marshmallows. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever tried whipped cream on your marshmallows? I could, you know. Probably not, probably not. So I'm going to eat more tamarind. You're going to eat more whipped cream. Homemade whipped cream, yes. Since you're starting out with fatty, maybe your curve will go the opposite way.
7: That's right. Maybe by the end of the year, I'll be drinking tamarind soda with you. And working out at the gym.
4: Right.
3: Dan Pashman, thank you for uh, your New Year's resolution for 2017. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Happy New Year. That was Dan Pashman from the Sparkful Podcast. On today's show, I visited Andy Ricker in northern Thailand that I did have a final thought. You know, when I arrived at Chiang Mai Airport, I was met by Nok. She's the charming local fixer who greeted me in the Y fashion. Hands are chin high in a prayer-like gesture. And at the time, I really didn't know what to do. Three days later, as we were saying our goodbyes, I bowed to Nok in my best imitation of Wai. Now, I had learned something, just a gesture, but enough to remind me that I was bringing back something precious from Thailand, something old and something new. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also on our very own website, that's MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download each week's recipe.
5: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production Assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior Audio Engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior Audio Editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio Mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production Help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.